What is going on, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to episode 21 of the High Bar Podcast. We have the domestic Nori powerlifting team here. We're just missing Eric today. Uh, he's enjoying his his summer in Sweden right now, although he's probably sleeping right now because it's it's late at night for him. But we have Michael Jin, we have Aiden Raider, and we have Jaren Yamane. It's much earlier in the morning for Jaren right now. Uh, next episode, we'll be we'll be letting him get into some exciting news. Um, but to give you guys just a little preview, um, they have opened Ukio 3.0 over in Hawaii, which is incredible. It's a significantly bigger space that they now have to occupy redistribute their equipment and uh, some other stuff that I'll let Jaron share next week. But uh, thank you guys. Thank you guys for coming on. It's it's uh, always great to be able to sit down with you guys and talk, whether it's about coaching, whether it's just catching up, you know, I, I enjoy it. And I miss I miss being able to do it in person in, in Hawaii. So we'll have to make another another planned trip back out. Yep. Yep. Absolutely, man. But we also have the we also have raw nats coming up in uh in September, so we'll be able to reunite there. But it's always uh it's always a pleasure and a treat to be able to catch up with you guys and and just uh talk life and talk story. But today we're gonna be mainly talking about coaching and um I believe today you want to talk mainly about just kind of timelines and, and block lengths today, Sean. Is that right? Yep. Yeah. So this is an interesting topic because I think that like the direction that that powerlifting programming has has gone in, right? And we've talked about this on this podcast. We've talked about it, you know, just publicly in general. Is that, you know, there is a there was a transition period from like phasing your training more directly to kind of just trying to find what works and and just making incremental changes over time. I think originally, like the standard, you know, block length would be like a four week period. And then with the with the advent of like emerging strategies, we kind of, you know, well, some of us adopted that principle into our programming and started just running things until they really didn't work anymore. Um, but now I would say one of the areas where I've changed my mind is on block length, because I think for a while I kind of felt like it didn't really matter as much and we can just keep making pushes um, until we we can't. Um, but I've run into some scenarios, especially as, you know, some of my lifters have gotten significantly stronger where that approach is just not the most successful in the long term. You know, you can get away with it certain periods of times, but in terms of crafting like a long term plan for, you know, a training year, I've I've found some, uh, you know, I've made modifications to my previously existing biases Um so I'm curious to hear, and whoever wants to jump in first can can talk about this. But I'm just curious, you know, how each of you goes about actually determining block length for your lifters, and then what factors you've taken into account that would make you, you know, lean toward longer block lengths for some people or shorter block lengths for others. Uh, I can go first. So I, I think, uh, uh, obviously the way I set up my process, it has gotten modified and, and through the inspiration of, uh, hearing Aiden and Jaron and some of their perspectives on it. Typically, I think, uh, I look at archetypes or heuristics of like the type of lifter I'm going to be intaking. So I think we've presented on before as a group on our intake process, kind of all the little nitty gritty details that can really, uh, constitute uh, a direction for, their history with their training already, their gender, weight class, 
just response ranges to each of the lift on some of either the rep ranges or experiences that they've had. Obviously, we might start to stereotype that lighter weight class. Uh, very, very high arch female bench pressers might need a little bit more frequency or male bench pressers might need that frequency. But typically, I'll have like an intuitive heuristic or guideline I use. And for most of the lifters, I think the block duration, I might intuitive, intuitively start it at that uh, typical four to five, six week range. But then the modifications start to occur as we assess performance and start to uh, look at the variables of, of kind of where I took from Jaron on his presentation was uh, not having every lift always have the same cycle duration. And I think I thought more intently about that over the last year or two. And then same thing with Aiden on, on one of his talks he gave, he talked about, um, you know, having a lifter being more primed versus more recovered and what to prioritize. And I think that starts to, uh, that has made me change kind of how I set up the block duration, but that's kind of the way I go about that process. Yeah, if I were to describe my my process, it, it would you know similarly start at the lift, looking at the heuristics of the lifter. You know, if they're you know mainly mainly looking at weight class and and gender there, and uh, I found that like around what my what my average is and where most people fall will be within four to four to five weeks. Uh, you know, sometimes sometimes six for for lighter maybe female lifters. Um, but you know, typically, I would I would do start around like a five week block for for individuals, and uh, it's it's only if like uh, the the decision to change that block length comes more so reactively with me, where uh, you know, gauging on you know, um, kind of, I, I guess something that can um, you know, uh change the block lengths that, that that i would give a lifter is kind of you know how they how how quickly i believe they need to pace their blocks to kind of stay in a productive zone um and and not like either not derail their training or it, it can be influenced by factors such as like how long someone can go throughout a block without really feeling super beat up that is that is one of the cases in which uh that it's actually most of the cases that I've changed block length has come down to they reach a certain week and then they their their knees start feeling beat up their back starts feeling beat up, um, you know not just with a with a fatigue but specifically that they start um, experiencing aches and pains that um, you know just just start to arise at a certain certain week um, and then on the opposite end you know if if I find that a lifter I I maybe we start at a five week block or a four week block for a lifter. And, um, I, I, at the, at the end of the block, you know, I'll, I'll give them, uh, I'll ask them for feedback about how they're feeling and perhaps if they're feeling fantastic and, um, they're not feeling fatigued by the training, they're not feeling beat up at all. Then perhaps we explore taking uh, longer than average of what, what I typically will give someone. Yeah, for me personally, like I would say as of right now, I found this sweet spot for block duration to be about six weeks. And so if I'm starting with someone new, that's typically where I'll start them. And I'll let them know ahead of time, like, hey, we're going to be running this block for six weeks. This is how I want you to pace things. This is kind of where I want you to start. This is when we can start ramping it up. And then after week six, we can touch bases and see how you're feeling. And from there, I'll kind of fine tune it, um, whether that was the perfect block length, whether that was a little bit too short, 
whether that was a little bit too long. And then our second block that we would run together would be kind of like a fine tune from there, whether five weeks maybe is a, is a better move based on their feedback or maybe four weeks or maybe even a little bit longer, seven or eight weeks. But I would say as of late, um, have it, I don't really have too many people running eight weeks, eight week blocks. Um, most of my lifters will run six week blocks or less. Um, but yeah, that's kind of how I like to approach it. It's like starting with the baseline of six weeks is what we're planning for. And then how do we want to adjust from there, either up or down? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, but it, it actually, it wasn't always, always like that. It was actually a, a very different when I first started coaching. And I would say even maybe my first one to two years coaching, um, I took the approach of just seeing how the lifters feeling and not really having a set block length, but you know, based on uh, how you're feeling and how you're moving. And if it's working really well, then there's no need for us to to call it early at a certain week, especially if we're in an off season. Um, and I actually got that approach from you, Sean, because there were times that we ran some much longer blocks. Like, you know, they weren't four weeks, they weren't six, they weren't even eight sometimes. They were a little bit longer than that. And I was like, it was working really well for me. So of course, that was a big influence on the way that I wanted to approach coaching and the way that I wanted to handle block length for my lifters. Um, but yeah, that was, a. Uh, I would say when I first started, it was kind of just running their block until it didn't work anymore. And then from there, it's like, okay, let's reassess and then we'll start a new block. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, go ahead. <clears throat> I have a question for you, Jaron, actually. Um, I'd be curious to know what Sean Jin's block length is, as well as like how you got around to uh, arriving to that. Because um, I, 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 when I see his posts on Instagram, I'm very surprised to see like how long he can push for. Because I, you know, see him taking like 620 for a triple, and then he does like 630 for a triple, and then the next week he does like 640 for a triple. He does so he's taking like these very bad. I don't know if he's overshooting. I don't know if he happens to be like just completely disregarding your RP or your weight selection or something. But it seems like his like blocks never end. He, like he like he hits like an RP like nine set, and then he has like three more weeks of the program where he's hitting like similar sets. And like uh, surely he must be like taking a deload or going back to a week one the next week, and it just like it doesn't happen. It seems like his block lengths are just uh very long, and then and then it seems like he has also like a very slow build up to that like hot streak he gets on yeah yeah for sure so i mean well sean actually doesn't run very long blocks uh for the most part they're right around six weeks and even for his meat preps uh we'll start them at six weeks out i'm just kind of taking a look at some of his previous yeah his last two preps they were uh both six week meat preps um the block before his pla nats prep was four weeks the block before his Korea meet prep was that one was actually a little bit longer because we had about seven weeks in between meets. Um, <laughs> and he was feeling pretty good um, for that period. So we actually ran a uh, a seven week block. So that was probably the one that, that you're looking at because uh, on week five, he hit 640 for a triple on squat. The next week he <laughs> he took a 663 for one and a half. It was supposed to be a yeah, triple. Yeah, that. so that's that's probably and then um the week following he took 65, 655 for a double. It was supposed to be a triple at eight. Yeah. But like, you know, um that's probably what you're seeing. So it's it's kind of it's kind of interesting to see from the outside perspective, right? Like what you guys see versus what's actually um planned out for the lifter. 
but to give you kind of an idea about pacing, like um, it is very much a slow build because on week one, I do cap him off very low in intensity. I give him like an RP four. And for a lot of people, that's really hard to gauge, honestly, right? Like walking into the gym. Okay. What can I hit for a top set? And I know I have six reps in the tank. It's a little bit hard to gauge, but I'll just give my lifters more context. Like if I give you an RP four, that just means to take it very, very light. And in Sean's case, I'll also give him a cap. So on his week one, it was an RP four cap. Um, sorry, it was an RP four intensity with a five eighteen cap for his um for his triple. So he took five eighteen for a triple there. Um, took about fifteen kilo jumps week to week. And by the time we hit week five, we he was taking a uh, six forty, and then that's probably the one that you saw, you know, on social media is that it was the weeks five through seven. Um, but yeah, you know, it was, uh, on paper, it was supposed to be like a triple at seven, um, week, uh, week six was supposed to be a triple at seven and a half ended up being the, the six sixty three for, for one and a half reps here. Yeah, like RP, like, tw- <laughs> like 12.5. <laughs> but yeah, so, so it's kind of cool. It, it is, like I said, man, it's cool to see, um, how people perceive things from the outside versus like how things are going internally with Sean and I and and what's on paper and what's actually being prescribed because he definitely doesn't wrong run these outrageously long um blocks where it's like we're running 10 week blocks or 12 week blocks you know all of them are within the four to six maybe seven range um even the block that we're doing right now um we're currently on week six but we we did take a deload last week on week five and we're kind of running like a rehab block right now with um the the inside of John's song and he's been doing a phenomenal job and uh we're doing everything we can to get Sean back to to pain free lifting on on squat and deadlift so mm-hmm. um seeing yeah. someone who can like perform so well like that especially being like how strong he is specifically on on the squat is just kind of kind of like absurd to me as someone who's like on the opposite end of the spectrum in terms of like <laughs> uh recovery trends and like just like you know, someone who I, I'm someone who really needs to like save their their gas for the the rest, like the very end of the block, and then I'm just like my tank is empty. So, um, yeah. yeah. So it's 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 pretty like astounding to see him be able to perform so well like week after week, and um, I think that's like I think it's pretty uncommon, just especially for like how strong he is. So it's, it's pretty pretty interesting how you've able to. But I mean, it wasn't intentional that he would uh uh take such heavy weight like i'm I'm sure you were imagining him to take something much lighter for rp7 and seven and a half um and you know perhaps he would have been able to end at a higher note if he had done so so you know that's on that's on sean but (laughs) yeah uh, it's very interesting no for sure but I i would say that i definitely do take the approach of of pretty much like what you said aiden is is starting off the block really conservative and making sure that we are saving it uh for the last one to two weeks of the block um because that's typically what most people have right they can't push it for six weeks really strong back to back to back um most people i would say 99 percent of people will definitely benefit from starting off a lot more conservative and then just kind of ramping things up as we go on and then you know most people will will kind of uh top out at like week five or week six and then they're ready for a deload after that um but yeah in in terms of uh sean's in terms of sean and how we approached some of his uh intensity caps and like how we want to start 
him off really conservative. That kind of happened organically um, just because, you know, there were, were blocks that we would run. I mean, Sean and I have been working together now for almost three years. And, you know, there were uh, times when we first started working together that things were being pushed too hard too soon. And so over time, like block to block to block, we kind of just developed this approach of we want to keep intensity really, really low to start the block. Um, but then even after that, that that evolved to like, okay, we not only have to set intensity really low, but we have to also set caps so that we're not pushing it too hard. And like, there's a, a number that both Sean and I can see on paper that it's like, we're, we're starting here. We're on the same page. Um, we both know that this is a good number to start at. So I, I have a question for uh, the group, for all of you guys. Um, and, and Sean, you can start off uh, uh, first and answering it. But first, before I get into the question, I think one thing that stood out to me that Jaren said that I intuitively try to do myself is giving the lifter the context for when it is that first intro week. Like this is the pacing and how you should feel. And I think even with that RP4 example you gave, I like that you gave Sean an actual cap number so that he has something as a reference point. So the question I was going to lead into with that portion was, obviously, all of us here are pretty familiar with RP. Many of our listeners are familiar as well. When it comes to like using a percentage or actually picking out that specific number, um, sometimes the type of thing I would get from a lifter is, hey, like, I didn't see my training maxes updated yet. Like, are the percentages you pick good? Like, are they accurate? And I usually reassure them and let them know, oh, I might not have updated it, but the number I picked it's not an arbitrary 70% that I picked just because of 70%. It's I picked that specific number with more additional context in mind. So my question for you guys is like, if you do use any sort of percentage uh, programming of any kind, whether it's a linear buildup or any picking a specific number rather than RP, what are some of the contexts you guys do that or have liked to use that uh, just from your experiences? Yeah. So I'll answer your question and then I'll, and then I'll hop in on, you know, my approach for the, the original question posed, but I would say that the, I'll answer about the, I guess, less common use of, of percentage, um, which would be, I guess, like top sets. And I don't mean less common, but I, in, in the sense that none of us use it, but more so that since the, the pendulum has swung toward RPE, I feel like you tend to see a lot of top sets strictly prescribed as RPE, whatever, you know, you have a single, prescribed RP five, six, seven, eight, whatever. Um, and, you know, that's been the, I guess the cultural shift in programming where, you know, it's rare that you see a program that just looks like, you know, five triples at 80%. And like, that's your, your main work for the day. Right. But I think that what I like to do or what I, what I hope to achieve with any given lifter is that we get to a point where we understand very well where their strength level is at we understand their block length or desired block length very firmly. And what we end up doing is planning backwards, right? So if we have, you know, an understanding that their block lengths are going to be four weeks, but we also have an understanding that, hey, I'm not going to get to peak form in the four weeks time that we might have to have these wave loads, right? So we might have several mesocycles that make up this larger macro cycle. And we're going to say, okay, you know, we're going to get to an RP9 by the end of this block, but that RP9 is not going to be near your max. You know, it's going to take momentum with this current framework to actually get there. So in terms of prescribing percentages, what I'll usually do is have this wave loading strategy where I am going to say, okay, I am going to assume that by the end of this third four-week block, we should be able to either match or exceed what you are capable of one, one RM wise. 
And if I know that we want to wave load, right? And for anybody listening who's not familiar, uh, wave loading would basically be, you know, instead of completely deloading, right? And, and bringing intensity down to some incredibly low level, it would basically be this like incremental step up above what your previous blocks week one would look like. So for example, if you went, you know, one, and I'm just going to make this very, very simple. Obviously, these are not realistic numbers. Let's say you went 100, 150, 200, 250. Maybe your next block would look like 125, 175, 225, 275, right? So it's this incremental jump that allows you to quote unquote deload, right? Because your stress of your week one in block two is lower than your stress of week four of block one, but it's not a a full reset that would, you know, completely detrain you such that you'd have to rebuild momentum, right? So it's just a decompression period to then build back up. So for my athletes who have a really strong understanding of where their strength is at and block length, I'll usually work backwards with target goals. So I'll give an RPE, but I'll be like, hey, this is the pace that we're trying to set because if this works the way that we're expecting it to work, I can't have you going for broke at the end of this first block because then we're not going to be able to maintain the momentum that we currently have. Um, so, you know, there are a couple of lifters who, you know, kind of inspired this, this topic for this podcast that I'll get into in a little bit, but I'm very particular with picking their numbers where I'll give them an RPE cap for the day, but there's a, there's a number tied to it. And it's almost, you know, the expectation that just, if you feel like shit, you go under, but you're not going over, right? Like this is, this is the, the upper limit of what I plan on having you take today. Um, no exceptions to that on the upper end. Lower end is just accounting for any, you know, it's insurance for any extenuating circumstances, poor sleep, poor diet, you know, family emergencies, whatever might come throughout the course of training for somebody. So that's a context where I'll use it, where I would say, you know, that's been the less popular, um, you know, way to use it because most people program a lot of top sets, just RPE based. Um, another context where I'll use it is, is with, you know, like the back down work, so to speak, the submax back down work. And the reason I even mention this as as noteworthy kind of refers to what you were mentioning in your in your hypothetical situation, Michael, which is that people ask, you know, oh, my my maxes, you know, are new now. Have you have you updated them? And the reason I wanted to bring this up is that there are periods of training where you might hit a new max or you might have, you know, a top double or triple that indicates that you have a new max and the lifters expect to see that be reflected in their next training block. And I think the thing for people to understand is that the percentages that were chosen, right? And the consequent bar speeds that arose from that, that that's what made you the progress during that block, right? So I think a lot of times what can happen is that if you decide to just keep updating training maxes in the short term, as you make your way across successive blocks, you might run yourself into a wall far too quickly because like I said, the thing to understand is that the previous weeks where you were training off of this, you know, now old training max was a good spot intensity wise for you to continue making progress. So it's probably not going to be till the end of a macro cycle where I even consider, you know, changing the the percentages or rather changing the one rep max that would lead to higher weights being used for any given percentage. And even then, maybe we make it to the end of that macro cycle and I might, you know, Maybe we do find that, hey, we did get better, but you were feeling burnt out. So maybe I would not put in the the true, you know, one RM that you have. Maybe I'd go somewhere in between your old one and your new one, right? So, you know, 
it's all about kind of reconvening after the the period of training comes to term, because then you can ask yourself, were those percentages I chose even the appropriate ones in the first place? Um, so before, before I, well, actually I'll, I'll let anybody respond to that before I go on my next sort of rant here. Cause I did want to answer like the general, you know, philosophy of the, my, my answer to the, to the podcast question, but I'll let anybody jump in who wants to. Uh, yeah, I was, I was just going to respond with, uh, I think that's something that like people don't really consider. That's a very good point. And like, people don't really consider very often anymore is that like, you know, the, the weights that you were, you know, the percent of RM that you were using for whatever sets and reps you have, you know, is what got you to uh, the successful uh, ending. And so sometimes that, that doesn't need to change if you're, if it, if it works so well, then just stay at that range, despite your E1 RM increasing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, being able to theoretically, you know, do something more, um, that doesn't mean that you should, or that it's even, um, viable. Yeah. And I think, I think there's, there's, you know, if someone's shown to you in a mesocycle that they kind of like own the block, like, Hey, like this was appropriate for me. And I, and I conquered it. My body felt good and all that. Like instead of, instead of upping, you know, their training max, you know, you can always just add 2.5 kilos, five kilos to whatever sets that you're looking to, you know, do on the back down stuff. Um, if that is deemed appropriate, you can also just not do every set at that load, right? Like you can have a, have a, have a partial change where maybe if you had like three sets at, you know, 70%, maybe you take one of those sets at, I don't know, 72% and then two of the back downs at 70%, right? Like you always have the option to be incremental in your changes. And I think that you have to be because, you know, if you have a string of really successful training blocks and you're constantly updating things, you know, you, you kind of don't realize how far you deviate from the starting plan that worked until you fall off the rails, right? Cause maybe you get to the fourth block and someone is like, I'm beat to shit. And I have no idea what happened. And you're like scrambling through the pages or like, Oh, where did we go wrong? And then you realize like, Hey, the loads that were being used and the consequent RPEs in the beginning were way easier than what they are now. But on paper, you're like, oh, it's the same percentage of 1RM. It's like, but it's not, you know, because at the time it was it was really lighter than what you were prescribing because you were adapting. So makes a lot of sense. I think people also need to factor in like that absolute load as well. Like if you're a much stronger lifter, obviously that 80% for that type of lifter, assume Assuming the training max we're using the 80% off of is somewhat accurate in the ballpark. It's not going to feel the same for a more intermediate lifter squatting 350 and they're 80%. So I think uh, like the trend I've almost kind of seen with a lot of lifters is like their total workload or volume might start to decrease at a certain point when they start to get pretty strong, absolute loading wise. And then the percentages you start to pick or RPEs you start to give, uh, I guess <clears> it becomes a little bit more custom tailored to that individual and their response ranges either at a certain rep range or at a certain intensity just dependent on the lift because i know mm -hmm. i think in the past sean like you had tried uh i think when you were working with jason from the strength guys you had done like kind of like a small off junior style bench training approach and i feel like it was a lot of volume overall but your bench i think from what i remember felt kind of stagnant at that point and then you were yeah. talking about how uh, changing up the intensity uh, and, and adding in some specific variations and components started to really push the change rather than doing all that volume and kind of beating a dead horse, not really getting anywhere with it. Yeah. I mean, to, to briefly touch on that point, I think the biggest issue during that period of time was simply the frequency being too low, you know, 
up until working with TSG, I'd been benching five days in the offseason and six days during preps. And we had gone down to four, despite pretty much every time going down to four, it being, you know, too little practice. Um, so that was that was that period of time. Um, but to address the the topic and the reason I, I kind of wanted to talk about this is that I feel whenever I encounter scenarios while coaching that, you know, multiple different scenarios kind of corroborate the same idea. I try my best and and maybe this is just something, you know, it's something I like to do is like, I try to define that and like actually incorporate it into a model because then it's teachable. Right. And a couple of years back, I would say that the concept of like people having different rep range sensitivities became a, an accepted and explored concept where now you all practice and see other lifters, you know, train maybe quote unquote, non-specifically going into a, a meet where it's like, how are you doing these reps, you know, going into competition that doesn't really make sense. Similarly, you might have people who never even touch rep ranges that high, you know, even in the off season. And after that, that principle was learned and established, then people were able to work backwards and figure out what actually characterized that. Right. So we learned, you know, different weight classes and just sizes of people can influence that. We learned that leverages can influence that and why we might see like different rep ranges be considered high for some people or unsuccessful for some people versus being the opposite for someone else. But the thing I wanted to talk about with this ultimately boils down to like intensity sensitivity. Um, and I want to, to use this time to kind of characterize this because, you know, we're all familiar on here with like the upside down U curve for progress and volume. Right. And the thing about how modern powerlifting coaches program is that we try to find an underlying workload for each lift that is going to drive progress. And we know that if we too drastically push above that, someone is going to be overtrained. And then we know that for some people, if we work, you know, marginally below that workload, the drop-off is precipitous, right? Like some people really detrain really quickly. Others can kind of handle working, you know, maybe at 80% of their workload and get 90% of the benefit, right? So we know that people's curves for, for volume and workload are kind of shaped differently, right? Some people are, the curve is way steeper, meaning that they overtrain or undertrain much more quickly. For other people, it's maybe more shallow in that they can handle, you know, lower and higher workloads. Um, it could be, sh you know, shallower or steeper on each side, right? Like, you know, we talk about people getting aches and pains, you know, as a result of maybe adding a set or two a week of a movement. But then they do, you know, you know, maybe they can handle working at 60% or 70% of their like, quote unquote, ideal workload. But anyway, the reason I bring this up is that we know that the way we program doesn't really touch volumes too drastically, right? We kind of find what works within our system and we keep things static for the most part, unless there's something that indicates to us that we need to systemically increase the the overall workload or, or decrease it right and that's part of your your job as a coach in determining feedback right but the thing about intensity that's interesting is that different people will have you know kind of like bar speeds that they need to move at for their training to be optimal for them right and and how i would characterize that practically is you know you see some people in training who kind of need like challenging working sets 
And then you see other guys like Austin Perkins who can move, you know, at RP zero and do sets of squats with like 450, despite having a nearly 700 pound squat max and they finish a block and they're, you know, tripling 650 or whatever. Right. So you see those discrepancies and the intensities and the bar speeds make up your back down volume. But with how we all program, we don't just do straight sets. We have these performance indicator sets within our programs that serve two purposes, right? They, they're the, they're the proof of concept that what we're doing is working, right? So we have them in there for us as coaches to be able to say, yeah, what we're doing is actually providing benefit and we should keep going forward with this or we should change course. But our sport is moving heavyweight slowly. So it also serves the purpose of, of actually contributing to our development of strength. The thing that's made me, you know, I guess aware of, of when to have longer or shorter block lengths is someone's sensitivity to that intensity, how stable you are in a high intensity environment or how volatile you are in a high intensity environment, because all of our systems are going to get us to converge upon a, like a certain layout for any given lifter. Right. But one thing that we observe as we make our way through a training block with someone is that there's kind of a low end of intensity, right? That if we were to work under, they're just not going to be trained, primed to actually move heavyweight. But then we also know that for every lifter, there's going to be this threshold intensity where even if the volume didn't take an uptick, if we go past that performance takes a dip, right? We've all seen it where maybe you, you know, you take a, a week three load and it ends up being, you know, maybe it's like an RP8, RP8 and a half, let's say, right? But percentage-wise, it just eclipses this number where now we don't have an opportunity to push further in the next week of the block, or at least push further at, you know, a, a speed that would indicate it was better than the previous week. Um, and the a, the couple examples that I have that have kind of like illuminated this to me and, and helped me characterize it more are specifically um Yaya Abonaga, so Pharaoh Lifter. Um is one of my guys who's like a, a a 105 and 110. Um very strong lifter, you know, squats around 700 pounds, benches around 500, deadlifts, you know, high sevens. And the trend that we kind of noticed in preps prior or blocks prior was that there was this, you know, peaking on week three. Right. And the the thing about peaking for him on week three is that it wasn't just that, you know, he was, you know, strongest on week three, um, just uh, independent of what he did leading into that point in time. But the pace that needed to be established was so such a drastic spread where it was like he's basically taking like nearly 10 percent jumps each week to then peak on that week three. And no matter what, like once he passes a certain intensity or percentage of one RM, there's a downtick, right? Like his training suffers in the following week. So the thing that I've kind of realized with, with a lifter like that um, was one to take the approach of, okay, let's, let's run shorter training blocks. So like Jaron talks about, you know, six week blocks, not necessarily being long. Like I, I feel like that's moderate encroaching on a long block. But with like somebody like Yaya, we're literally running three week blocks and we're only, you know, now uh, literally two two blocks removed from his last meet, but he's already hitting these, 
these PRs. And I don't think that that strength is as simple as like, uh, you know, like the, the tissue we develop or anything. Like it's a very time sensitive thing that we can make these changes that, that drastically alter the expression of them, of that strength. Right. So the thing that I'm trying to characterize with different lifters is like how, where, where is that, that upper limit of intensity where the, things just become volatile and where is that lower limit? Right. Cause like I said, like the, the underlying structure, we keep very static, but then we're trying to progress those, those top sets across a block. And if you're a lifter who has such a strong sensitivity to intensity, right? Like there, there is no room for you to be taking, you know, 90 plus percent within a block. You could start as easy as you want, but you, you, some people kind of have this like one shot, right? Like Aiden was saying, it's like, I, I have to save it for my end of the block. Right. And it's like, you almost have like this one chance to really perform within the training block. And since, you know, maybe the majority of your back down work is super light. It's like what drives your progress for the most part is this lower end of intensity. And then you're really sensitive to the higher end, but you need to have some sort of proof within your training that you've actually, you know, that you're actually making progress. So it's like, how do we, how do we give ourselves the opportunity to most accurately assess that? Because if you know that you progress on that submax stuff, but then the top sets that you're layering on top are way too aggressive. It's like you're doing all the right things in the underlying framework, but then you're just fucking it all up by just beating them up on the top end week after week. And it's like you flip a switch, you just give yourself like more space to progress from week to week. And it's this like complete 180. And I guess the point that I'm ultimately getting to is like this 180 is like, are you actually developing some some sort of strength that's like, like, are you building something in that short time frame? I don't think the answer is yes, but you have to then like, if you're not, if you're not actually building something, but you're just showcasing what you had all along, if you understand that structure and then build out block after block after block, then in the long term, you set this lifter up for way more success than if you're just, you know, if you didn't recognize that, I guess would be the way I'd put it. I know I just spit out a lot of stuff there, but I'm I'm curious what you guys think about that. Because we see it, right? You see it with guys like Ashton. You see it with guys like Bob, where like their blocks are four weeks. They're starting at, you know, 600, finishing at 800. And I don't think that it's, you know, it's a, it's, I don't think that it's just, you know, their elite genetics that are getting them to hit these PRs. I think that the, the, the pace and the space that they have to, to ramp up, decompress, ramp up, decompress is what's giving them that opportunity. I, yeah. I think that was, uh, like very beautifully laid out. Um, I think just like listening to that is very valuable for, for anyone who, who listens to this point. And, and it's very similar to like, you know, just the process that I've developed and, and I call it a little something different where you called it like the lower and lower threshold and the upper threshold, I believe. And, um, you know, when I've ever, whenever I've described my process for deciding block length, uh, you know, I've used a term that I, I call a productive zone, which is that like low, that, you know, where uh i guess the what is what is the the bar speed that an athlete needs to be productive and um so uh you know i describe my process very similar where it's you know um 
determining what an athlete's lower uh, lower number threshold, what their productive zone is, and uh, running them through uh, a block um, while at that uh, productive zone, seeing um, you know what week you know comes uh, that is their peak week, deciding that their peak week is now the the block length. You know what um, from working in a productive zone and then pacing the progression of that block through the productive zone at a, at a pace that is appropriate for the lifter. Um, so that's, that's, you know, pretty much the exact same way that you do it uh, from how you described. And, and I think it's, that was uh, just uh, an amazing way to lay that out. That was, that was very well-spoken. Yeah, for sure. I, I would, I would agree. I was going to just say the same thing, man. It's always a, uh... Before I get into my thoughts, it's always a treat to hear you talk about everything, man. You know, and, and um, like you really sound like a professor when you're when you're teaching this and going through your whole thought process, man. Your passion is definitely and your calling is definitely in being an educator, man. So it's always uh, such a treat to hear the way that you dissect things and the way that you can explain them as well. Um, but, you know, kind of going into my um, thought process and, and the way that I approach coaching in terms of some block length and um, when to push and when to pull back and when to reset. Um, I don't have too many of my lifters currently doing three week blocks, you know, three week or I do have some lifters doing four week blocks. Like, for example, one of my lifters, Shelly, um, is now, you know, approach that we took recently is, is doing four week blocks where in the past we've done kind of five or six weeks but um i would say that over time just the way that i approach coaching as well has just changed a lot in the past year because that wasn't always the case like a year ago two years ago my block lengths were a lot longer and my meat prep lengths were a lot longer whereas right now just through more experience and more time i found that it's it's really not as sustainable and um i've shortened my my block length pretty significantly and even my meat prep lengths again it hasn't gotten that short to like three week blocks or three week meat prep meat preps not to say that that wouldn't happen in the future um but even if i'm taking a look back at some of my my other lifters like say for example kyle <laughs> um kyle Dillion, like when we first started working together and this is so crazy but it's crazy that I, that I, that I'm looking at it right now and, and even saying it, but we used to run nine week meat preps. We used to start meat prep at at nine weeks out, um, and this was also you know I don't know at the time it seemed it seemed normal and it seemed doable because um, again even like when I was working with Sean we would run some nine week meat preps <laughs> we'd we'd yeah. run ten week preps you know and it was like it worked phenomenally and I did it with some of my other lifters and it worked great for them as well. They peaked great. They performed great. And I was like, yeah, this is, you know, we can do it. You know, this is, this is the route that I want to take with my coaching. Um, but I've just kind of found that over time, like our first meet prep that we did together um, with Kyle was for the Warcat one. It was nine week prep. And not only is that very very long for a meat prep but also halfway through the prep we increased volume so even more so it was just an increase in volume long block length and um you know he was feeling pretty beat by the time we were like four weeks out and I remember us talking like every week and he's like man I, I just I just don't don't feel that strong like the bar speed isn't moving while well, I feel too fatigued you know and he performed well on meat day but I just felt like 
there were things that we could have done better. So even the next meet prep that we did, which was Raw Nationals, which was a year ago. You know, this, this is last year's Raw Nationals. It feels like such a long time ago for me um, because right now my, my approach to coaching is so different. But even for last year's Raw Nationals prep, we ran a nine-week meet prep. You know, but this time it was like, okay, let's learn from what we did last time. We're not going to increase volume at all. Uh, we're just going to keep steady, consistent volume, and we're, you know, going to run a similar block length. Um, but even at that, it was like five weeks out, four weeks out, he was feeling beat, wasn't feeling confident, you know. And after that, we kind of assessed that and we're like, man, we're, we're just running blocks that are too long. You know, yeah. and I think it is it's super important as a coach to be able to look at yourself and your your approach and be like, what what can I do better? You know, always trying to reevaluate and trying to make sure that you are, you know, challenging yourself and questioning yourself to to give the lifter the best approach and program that they can have. Um, so following that, we're like, okay, this was this was too long. We gotta we gotta shorten it. So we started running some six week blocks. Um, we ran some four week blocks, and then eventually we got to the uh, the point where we figured that. Right now, you know, five to six week blocks are like his sweet spot. Um, sometimes even four weeks. I would just say, as a whole, four to six weeks are his sweet spot. And like, I I really don't um try to go over that. And I I make a conscious note to myself that like, okay, if we're in a you know uh an an interesting in between period from like his current block until meat prep, if I know that I want his meat prep to be six weeks, and we're, I don't know. 10, 10 weeks out or, or, you know, 11 weeks out, like I'm going to make sure that the we're prioritizing like a shorter meat prep, like a six week meat prep, as opposed to just running a meat prep that's seven or eight weeks long. Like it's, um, and we'll adjust the, the previous block to, to reflect that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just really cool that over time, you know, my approach has, has pretty much changed because our last meat prep that, that we did um let's see i'm taking a look now it was a, it was a five-week meat prep and his arnold prep was six weeks so it's like you know a year ago we were running nine weeks for for a prep which is almost double the length of what we did recently so um yeah just kind of over time i i found that it's it's i found a lot more benefit in, in running some shorter blocks as opposed to just running it um based on how the lifter's feeling or just running it until it doesn't work anymore. I have, I have a question for you about that. So if you were yeah. comparing, you know, your six week prep for Kyle's Arnold, cause Kyle's Arnold meet was the best meet he's done to date, right? It's his best total. Yeah. And at the lowest weight class he's competed at, um, yep. for anybody listening, he hit uh eight twenty two point five at 82.5, mm -hmm. which I think would put him at the third best current, um, 82.5 kilo total just behind Jamar and Russ. Yep. When you were programming that six week meat prep for him, did yep. that change the gaps between your week to week load selection? Or was it just more comparable to like starting the block at like what your week three would have been in your previous year's Nats prep? So like, were you just starting heavier? Yeah. And then just keeping the same pace you would have during a nine week block, or were you starting lighter and making much bigger jumps? Yeah, no, we were starting lighter and making just much bigger jumps and staying, 
you know, actually this, this kind of goes hand in hand with what you were talking about just in terms of like principle, like we would stay um, for the first two to three weeks of prep. Like we'd stay very, very conservative, you know, making sure that there's a lot of room to, to progress. And then we take some pretty big jumps as we get closer to meet day. Like I have his Arnold prep pulled up here. His, his first single at six weeks out was RP four capped it at 485. You know, and he ended up squatting 639 on on uh, on day. But it, like our first week of prep was 485, which is, you know, an actual RP is probably like zero. Um, his next week, we didn't even take that big of a jump. We took a 10 kilo jump, 507, 529, 551. Um, and then our last heavy single of prep was 595. So that was actually a 20 kilo jump. And then he took... Um, 639 on meet day so that's another day. huge jump the right? yamane peak stays low. <laughs> it went yeah it went crazy but it was really like um it's it's having confidence you know in in each other that it's like this this game plan is going to work because that could shake some people up for sure it's like hey man we're starting our prep off like i know we want to squat 639 but i'm gonna give you 45 for your first single of prep and like you know, three weeks out, the heaviest you're touching is 551. When we want to squat 639, you know, that could, you know, that could definitely have people on the fence, you know, yeah. but um, just literally like what you said, it's like we took multiple weeks and, and we took this time to really work in the lower threshold. And then as we got closer, we ramped it up big and then we ramped it up big again on meet day. So, yeah. Man, I have uh, I have so much I want to talk about and ask both of you guys right now. It's crazy, but um, <laughs> I uh, I have a very similar question for you, Jaron. Uh, but like the opposite end of the spectrum, when you were doing, uh, like you know anywhere from like seven to nine week blocks, like what what would that look like in terms of of like pacing the block? Would you just have like a a, a light start and a and a heavy end, and then just have many weeks of like mid range training that you would just stick in, or or what would what what does that look like when you plan that out? Yeah, I mean, you know, we would have maybe a similar starting point, but the jumps would be like a little a little smaller. So instead of it being maybe. 10 to 15 kilo jumps and then like a huge jump, you know, 15 to 20 kilos on the, on the last week, like in Kyle's case, not all of my lifters do that for sure. Um, but you know, the, the preps that we were running for like nine weeks, it was taking either five or yeah, five, seven and a half, <laughs> maybe 10 kilo jumps. So the, the jumps were a lot smaller and it was basically like a linear ramp up from nine weeks out until midday. And yeah, his more last, like a linear style progression. Exactly. Yeah. And his last heavy single, you know, we took about, yeah, like maybe 10 kilos less than, or actually in this case, yeah, I think it was 10 kilos or seven and a half kilos under what he ended up taking on actual meat day. So it was kind of like, um, yeah, just slow kind of progression for the, the nine weeks as opposed to now our approach is just, taking a longer period of working in the the lower intensities and it's like a big jump up. Yeah. And that's why that's, that's kind of what I was like, how I've, how I've started to think about it. Like how stable are you in that high intensity environment versus how volatile you are? Right. Because you have some lifters where maybe, and, and there's another factor to consider is like the skill aspect of things, right? Like does a lifter need to touch 
certain intensities more frequently to actually be capable of taking those intensities, right? So when you pair that with something like how stable someone is in that environment, you know, you have somebody like Kyle who like from my perception can probably hit something really heavy without having to touch anything near that. And that kind of seems like it's across the board for him, right? So looking back, looking at a nine week meet prep, you might be able to say like, yeah, he, he was probably able to handle it because, you know, from like the skill retention side of things, he doesn't really need to touch anything that heavy. Right. But then the, 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 the question that gets begged, right. Is like, how stable is he in this high intensity environment? And could we do better in condensing it to just give him more opportunities to have a a conclusionary period to a block? Um, because like a lifter who comes to mind for me is, you know, I have Cole Wagner, who's another guy who's also on three week blocks right now. And his training has never, never, never gone this well, um, especially on squat and deadlift. And I'm sure you guys remember, I I actually gave a presentation on his training back when we were in, um, when we were in Hawaii. And I think at the time, I can't remember exactly, but I feel like I had mentioned him like, you know, at the time we were on his week two and I said in the presentation, like, oh yeah, next week he's going to take like, maybe it was like 639 for a triple or something like that. And then that's what he ended up hitting. And then now we're at a point where he's taken like 716 in training. Right. And like one of the things that, that kind of like stood out to me with him is that, and I, and I guess I'll, I'll bring it back to this point is like, each of us have our system for how we program and maybe under a different system, the time to peak looks different for a given athlete, right? But if we're making progress, who are we to say that there's something better, right? We've made the mistake many times out of pride where we are doing well. And then we try to be more aggressive potentially to get more. And I would say the success rate with that is not as high as we would like it to be. I would say more often than not, like we're in a good spot when things are going well and we just need to keep that there, right? So we kind of acknowledge that there's like this static point for for or a small window of fluctuation for training volumes that people are pretty resilient to, right? Meaning that like you could have your underlying amount of volume that someone does week after week after week and after week and they feel great. Right. But then it's the top sets getting layered on top that are the disruptive ones. And it's like a question of how disruptive are they? Because you could keep someone training and having them feel healthy and progressing, you know, in the lower intensity ranges, probably for longer periods of time. If you like stripped away the top set stuff and just had them doing the back down stuff. Right. But then layering those top sets beforehand, it then becomes this question of, how past what point, right? Like I said, the upper threshold past what point do you completely disrupt this whole train and, and someone takes a dive, right? And it stands out as like a very different type of fatigue for, for certain lifters, right? Where for some, it doesn't really matter as much, but for others, namely someone like Cole or Yaya, who's like very, very strong, one rep can accumulate an, a, a performance type of fatigue, um, that seems to overshadow what all the workload that you do following actually does for that person. And with Cole, it was like, we, we realized like we have one shot within a training period to go above 90% and actually feel good with it. Right. Because a lot of times, like, sure, there, there are times with lifters where we do ramp up and need to ramp up because they are gaining their momentum. But there are other times with a lifter where we already have the momentum 
right? And we're just trying to make sure that we like pounce on the opportunity at the right time, right? Where like someone could feasibly take, you know, 97% on like a week one, but you just choose not to, right? Because you're hoping that, okay, we we can maybe eke out a little bit more performance out of them or whatever. So we we try to plan and optimize for what week that that falls on. And it was like, with Cole, we just knew like every time that we we got that opportunity, the next week would be a down week, even if it wasn't a max could be RP eight. Didn't matter. Like you're, you're going down. Right. So the decision-making after that was just, just wave load, wave load, wave load, wave load, where, you know, if we were doing, you know, a top triple, like we're going to do three blocks of three weeks of triples. And then once we realize that we're at the end of the road there, we'll do doubles. And then once we realize we're at the end of the road there, there we'll do singles. Um, you know, he's coming up on the the last two blocks of Nats prep in two weeks, I guess. And like one of the things that we saw was after his 716 triple, we're like, we know we have nowhere to go now with these singles. Like it's done, right? Like let's let's bring you back down to these these triples and give you this decompression time. And then we'll, you know, resume the singles in the last two blocks when it's appropriate. But yeah, I, I think I'm getting away a little bit from the original point there. But yeah, I mean, it, it's it's all in the name of creating more productive long-term training across a year for somebody, right? Like if you can give this lifter the opportunity to, one, make sustainable progress through like the lower weeks, two, give them the opportunity to like, own some sort of heavyweight that also shows them that they've actually made progress and have this crazy quick turnover rate to be able to do that more times within a year. I think that's more success. And I think that the situations where I see that being more common, at least in my experience these days are with these lifters who are like absolutely stronger, right? That just have higher overall levels of strength. Cause like we said, like you could have a female lifter run a block eight weeks and they're taking like minuscule jumps each week and they're just super resilient to the intensity. And, and, you know, that's how you accumulate your most productive training. But I would, I, I ultimately bring this to the, to the table as almost like a, a warning or an, an advisory for people who coach to like kind of probe the unsuccessful scenarios that they might have with some athletes, because literally everything in the program on paper could be right but like that top set load selection and like it might just flip a switch where everything starts to go significantly better just based on the frequency at which you pass like the upper end threshold of intensity um yeah this uh this is something that actually transitions well into something that i wanted i've been holding on to for a bit and wanted to talk about for you know about like 20 minutes now but um it's that uh I think that when you uh, consider changing the block length for an athlete, it's going to come uh, specifically like decreasing it, you know, potentially decreasing it. It's going to come out of like a, a situation or a source of disappointment from the athlete that, you know, they may be if you have a if you ran a five week block and they're um, had, a, had a fantastic week four and then they crash on their week five, uh, it's going to it's going to come out of um you know source of disappointment you know they, they really were looking forward to hitting something nice and maybe now if they're a neurotic lifter they think maybe they weren't uh capable of what they thought they were and i think uh if you as a coach identify that uh there's an issue here and that it's it's not that their strength wasn't there it's that 
you know, maybe uh, they went over their upper threshold or they peaked on that week four, then you have to, one, you, you not just take action, but actually like comfort the lifter in a sense and tell them like, hey, this is a plan of going forward. This is what happened. And then you have to identify whether, you know, maybe they did go over their upper threshold or maybe they, it was just a week uh, peak uh, on that, that prior week uh, that you had the, you know, the block length running to. And, and then a way that you can figure out whether that is the case is by running another block and uh, keeping it the same length as you did the prior block, but, um, you know, decreasing the intensity or, or, you know, whatever variable you need to manipulate for that, for that, you know, week four. And um, so then if you perform really well on week five, then that just means now you've identified the upper threshold of someone's, someone's training. Or if they peak really well on that week four, and then you know that you've decreased the intensity, maybe maybe you did an RP eight on the prior block, so you do an RP seven for the week four, and they really find a peak week, and then their week five is still still pretty poor despite not, uh, you know, despite decreasing the intensity. Then now you found that they've peaked on the week four, and it and it it, it um, wasn't any issue of uh, upper threshold. Yeah. Dude, you nailed it. I mean, that's a fantastic, fantastic point for people listening because, you know, you're basically outlining that the true like nature of of like peaking in X number of weeks is dependent on like the overarching system, but would be independent of the load selection. Right. And and I think that that was a really good point to bring up because, you know, there have been times where lifters have told me like, Oh, I, I felt really good on the, on the week three and then the week four suck. Like maybe I just need a three week block. And like, sometimes that might be the case, but sometimes it's like, well, you might just be really sensitive to like the, the area of loading that you took on that week three. And we might need to just tone it down a bit where it's like the, the, the time to peak might be different with, you know, um, the same like microcycle structure, but the the load selection just needs to be different, and you can have you know... um, that might come from either the athlete overshooting or just uh, you know uh, doing too much on the programming end. I, I feel like oftentimes it actually can come from just the athlete getting overzealous, uh, you know, on their week, uh, you know, the week before their their uh, final week. Yeah. So um, that's that's another that's a whole separate issue that you need to sort out with them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, but that's, that's my process for figuring that out, uh, whether it's, the uh, going too heavy, you know, reaching the upper threshold or, um, figuring out what the actual time to peak is for someone. Yeah, no, that's a great point. Time to peak versus just appropriate <laughs> load selection. Yeah. It, yeah. Essentially forcing your, your peak early. Yep. Yeah. And, uh, and then the, I was going to ask you as well um, about um, about uh, WAGs, but you already uh, went over that, so that was great. Yeah, I mean, I'll give you I'll give you an example of numbers here, just for people, for yourself, and for people listening to get an idea of what kind of jumps we're taking. So in his wave load, so we, there were two blocks of singles for WAG. So it was a six week period, two with two three week blocks. The load selection up to his first end of block, which was seven oh five was um 595 650 705 and then the next block was 584 639 716 the caps that i gave him were 584 661 716 
But in that second block, he didn't feel good enough to take the 661. But on the third week, he hit the 716, right? So the time to peak is a robust quality there. But the the load selection is a very sensitive point. And if you're looking at percentages, right, you're trying to do the math there. It's like this dude's taking like eight, nine percent jumps each week, right? Going from starting a block at 584 to finishing it at 716, that's a significant, significant jump in a short period of time. And it's not like the 584 is moving at lightning speed to start the block. Like it's coming off of a week of 705 and the 584 is not feeling that great. And the 639 is, oh, I finally got my legs back underneath me. And then the 716 is like, all right, I'm the fucking man. Like I'm ready to ball. Right. So it's like, it's not just that you're primed every single week and you're just holding out on taking that load. Like the the structure is yielding the best performance on that week. Yeah. And that sounds so absurd. And like to have such a sh- short week block, I guess, to some people and um, like to have such a massive range that this that this lifter can exist in. But, you know, uh, it's fantastic because you're kind of just running three week, three week sections where this lifter is just staying constantly in a productive zone and it kind of like auto regulate regulates itself because he has such a massive range to work with. Yeah. Um, and, and since like he, um, I, I guess maybe because the, the, the bar speed, I guess gets affected on that week one and week two, despite it being such lighter loads, it's still like challenging for him. So it still tra- trains him properly. Yeah. And the thing and the thing that I'll add to this that goes back to what Michael asked about percentages is that his back down work is very specific. Like we have the loads mapped out for all of his back down stuff and it's very particular. And it's usually just like, you know, if you're comparing week one of one block to week one of another block, it's usually like this incremental step up. And the zones for those intensities are weights that we've kind of realized like, hey, this is what he needs to be in that productive zone for the back down stuff, right? So it goes back to what I was saying before of like, you know, we know through our coaching what is like the appropriate amount of workload and the corresponding bar speeds of the reps that comprise that workload. And that remains incredibly consistent week to week where the jumps are not huge on his back down stuff, right? The back down work is much more closely clustered together from week to week within a block and then is incrementally higher from one block to the next. So the underlying structure is is there to support that that progress, but then the top end is is much more drastic and volatile, but it's it's what works. It's interesting. I wouldn't have expected that actually. I would so what so um what does like if you can give me an example like what what does his back down work look like from uh from throughout a block throughout his blocks yep i will pull it up for you right now so the way that his training set up is he has two squat days and he has i'm still pulling it up but i just remember he has a uh, pause triple it's usually a pause triple or a pause double um on his monday session we don't ever go into singles for that day just because Percentage wise, we're trying to keep it lower, Um, but he has a paused double or triple and then SSB sets of eight or seven to follow Um, that day usually has like a reasonably high peak intensity and then a much lower um, average intensity just by virtue of having, you know, SSB work. Um, And then his primary day 
he's usually taking um, sets of five. Um, so if I'm looking at it right now, his block that he's currently in, he has sets of five that are RPE five cap or 225 kg. So percentage wise for him, that would be, I mean, that's got to be like 66%. Let me just do the math real quick. Uh, okay. 68%. Okay. And then his, fi his uh, following week has a cap of 240 kilos. And then his following week would have a cap of 252.5 kilos, right? So they're decently sized jumps, but it's, it's much more closely clustered together on his back down work. And, you know, if I'm looking at the RPEs, he reports it being at, um, I'll go to the last block just since that was finished, you know, He's putting at six, at six to seven, at six in in terms of taking these, you know, more moderate, closely clustered jumps, right? So we've kind of found that this is the sweet spot where it's like, okay, bar speed wise, he needs to move at about a six. And then how do we, you know, what loads do we then work backwards with and select? Those end up being the loads, those end up being the jumps, Right. But then, like we said, on top of that, it's not like we could be working with jumps that closely clustered because now we're entering an intensity zone that creates a completely different training response to, you know, working in the in the upper 60s and 70s. Right. He's more stable in that zone yes. and then more volatile in the higher zone. Do you, do you think if uh, that his back downs were set in RP for like his week three, that it would just completely crash him for the week, the next week to come, it would just, just destroy him. You know, if, if, cause if you took like a true, like three by five at RP seven, you know, that would be way higher than, than 252. And that would be, you know, it's, so you think that's uh, something that's important to just keeping con like uh, this, this like three week continuum, to uh to continue and not just crash yeah so i mean i'll say a couple things to that the first being that he does tend to have pretty big drop-offs after a top set where his back downs are hard right so like okay. you you might be correct in saying that if he stayed really fired up that he'd be able to hit something considerably higher but i don't think it would be as high as you would think um and that's something that i've learned over all my time working with him where i'll go into the sheet and see a top set and I'll see the back downs prior to having prescribed percentages for him. And he's picking loads that are way lower than what I would have thought. And then I ask okay. for videos and I see them and they are moving at about what he would rate them. Um, but to ultimately answer your question, I mean, I absolutely think that it's worth just keeping it this way because we've just had repeatable results. The pacing hasn't failed us. And frankly, he does get reasonable intensity exposure on both days. Right. Because he has the opportunity to touch pretty much all time PRs on the week threes of every block. But then he's still getting the opportunity to touch, you know, over 600. So now we're in like the 80 plus percent range on his day one. Right. At least for that that week three, which seems to be sufficient. So, you know, there's nothing at this point that would stand out to me to say, yeah, let's give him more freedom of of load selection on that day's back downs and increase the average intensity because I, I I can't imagine it it going any better. And like you kind of hinted at, you know, it could completely crash the following week and maybe disrupt this wave load structure that we have to the point where like we got to do a full deload before we even consider doing, you know, another three week block. Which and then that would just disrupt his momentum. Yeah, disrupt yeah. the momentum. It messes up the planning. It's just it's just not worth it.
Yeah, and it's not like he needs it. He just needs like the the exposure, and then just uh, just kind of like not whatever, but just uh, just to get the reps in, really. Yep, for sure. I see. It's an interesting case. Um, I I have um, I don't know how much uh time we have, but uh, if I, I have one case of an athlete doing a three week block, uh, but I don't know if anyone else has any thoughts they want to share. Uh, overall, I, I just uh, like listening to kind of like all the points that you guys were making. Um, I had different thoughts kind of throughout. Like I thought about instances where organically when I have a lifter that has to take vacation, uh, depending on the duration of time, kind of the interesting differences in response you see post-vacation where they weren't able to train at all. Like the type of lifter that comes back and says, man, I feel super fresh and I feel like I haven't even really regressed or detrained versus the lifter who detrains probably like 20% from baseline and needs that one to two week period to really get their feet back under them. Um, I like that uh, when Aiden had brought up like the overshooting component, obviously as much as we don't want to see that uh, when it does organically happen and a lifter does overshoot, it can actually, you know, end up becoming that data point where it's like, oh, okay, now we kind of uh, accidentally found that intensity threshold that we, we were you know not trying to exceed, but now like there's clear uh, definitive like uh, experience or anecdote on like when that might have affected the lifters progression and I thought of lifters I've had where uh, like any sort of high intensity really ruins uh, regardless of cycle length like it just really causes their training to crumble apart and seeing some lifters just thrive on a submax intensity range for a specific lift seeing others thrive on the opposite end like I thought of like Connor Borkert on deadlift uh, versus like Richard Yoon, Korean Hulk on Instagram on deadlift, where Rich always is pulling 700 plus weekly. Uh, and then Connor's the type where from previously talking to Brad Couillard and, and Connor, you know, he passed really intensity cap his deadlift training, doesn't even really pull super aggressively heavy, close to comp. I don't know if that's changed since I've last talked to him, but it was kind of like opposite sides of the threshold where Rich's progression into a meet, he's already starting at a pretty high intensity baseline and very incremental. He can progress to thrive at the meet, whereas Connor's is probably more of like Jaron's very conservative approach to start with, but then his ending intensity point is still considered pretty conservative by most average lifter standards. So all very uh, interesting food for thought, but yeah, that's, that's just the, what I was thinking of as you guys were talking about it. <laughs> I'm almost jealous. I'm like jealous of lifters who can like consistently perform like that because I'll show up to my week one and then, and then, uh, or like my week zero I have and Sean will prescribe me loads like, like 365 on squat. And, uh, and then you'll I'm, ignore I'm them. Gym. Well, sometimes, <laughs> but, but, uh, I'll, I'll just go to the gym and then I'll, I'll just be thinking like, wow, like, like I bet everyone's just looking at me. Like, why is that 200 pound big dude? Like taking 365 on squat. What is he doing? Like he's so weak. Oh my gosh. Where some lifters are just hitting, like, you know, just staying at their high, their high end of performance, like pretty constantly. Um, the, uh, the overshooting scenario actually reminded me of, of one short little case I have here um, with, with Joe Butterfield where um he used to be someone who peaked just just so hard on his week five he would just be a completely different lifter when it come to his week five but as of late his squat uh, was actually shown to uh, peak on week four now so his time to peak has changed um from week five from uh massive uptick in performance on week five his his bench and his deadlift still peak on week five but his squat specifically we have deduced that it uh peaks on week four and um 
So th there was a there was a block where he he overshot really hard in his week four, and so I um and he was kind of expressing that he felt like he just peaked on week four, but um I was kind of challenging that because he he had overshot so hard, <laughs> and then we ran the the next block, and so I really pulled him back uh on on you know he hit like um i think he hit like 584 for a single on the previous uh block and so that was uh like that that was uh, already a pr single um and so he he had hit that on the week four and uh that was heavier than intended so i just assumed you know he just kind of ruined his his week five peak that he usually gets but then we ran we ran the next block uh pulled back the week four and uh, despite pulling back week four, he still had a pretty bad performance on week five. He just felt he just showed up weaker and was like, oh, wow. OK, well, your time to peak has actually changed, despite not really like changing up the programming too much. Um, so that that was kind of interesting. Um, but uh, uh, the the other case study, I guess, that I ha had to mention with the three week block was um, just that I had an athlete who I would describe as a glass cannon. Uh, his name is Jordan Bordeaux. And he um, came to me. Uh, um, we don't have this problem anymore. He's not a glass cannon anymore. Um, but when he came to me, he was running like a, a program where he was squatting like five times a week. So he came to me just ridiculously injured. Um, like he, he, yeah, he just he 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 came to me just just everything was uh, in shambles, so uh, to say the least. And um, so. You know, uh, running his training was kind of like a balance between like staying in his productive zone, but his productive zone would also just injure him. It would just re-aggravate the things that he, uh, you know, had injured prior. And for a meat prep, what, we, what, what I what I observed was that um, he'd be fine up until week four, and then his week four and week five, he would just his his adductors, his knees. His hips just would just all, you know, um, shatter, <laughs> you know, they just, they would just, um, feel really just be in tons of pain. So, um, we had to take like a block that was just ridiculously light, like, uh, just, uh, just some load limiting, uh, variations just to allow him to heal. And then he wanted to go right into a, a, a meat prep. Um, so what we ended up doing, um, cause he was starting to feel fine again. What I, what I ended up doing with that was just to, uh, just to bypass the periods of time that he would end up feeling uh, be, um, excessively beat up. I just shortened his blocks to th three weeks because we just consistently saw that it was only in week four and week five that he um, started getting injured. And we ran um, two, three week blocks in a row um, and he was completely fine. Didn't, didn't feel any pain at all. And uh, he was able to run through a prep and uh, go right from the end of a, of the, um the block right in, right into a new one and he just wouldn't feel pain past that because we would reset down um instead of continuing to push and we would kind of just pace the block rp6 rp7 rp8 and um and then and into the next block and rerun it and it, it was very successful we ran it for oh we ran that three-week block structure for maybe like one or two more um blocks and then we switched back to five weeks once he once i felt like he was um you know kind of uh, had a long period of time where he uh, was training without pain, and because um, I did, I did, did decide that um, you know more of like a four week or a five week block for him would be more productive for him than the three week block. The only reason he was doing three week block was to to bypass getting injured, um, and now we've had like zero issues, and he continues to do five week blocks now. Hmm. That's, <laughs> yeah, so that's really cool. 
kind of interesting, kind of a, a weird way to um, get around um, his injuries. Uh, but um, that's what we did, and it worked. So. Yeah, no, this is, that's really cool. Number one, number two, I mean, this has been a very insightful podcast episode just like listening to each person there's so much to digest from each of you and um you know i i love being able to learn from each of you guys i love being able to hear how you put things into practice and like if you're listening to this and you've made it this far i mean this is probably going to be one of the most specific conversations on this topic probably available <laughs> And, you know, if you're a, if you're a coach, if you're a self-coaching athlete, I think that there's a lot to, to take away from this. I know that, I know that I am. And, uh, you know, the example that you just gave Aiden is something that I'm actually like trialing with a lifter of mine, who's a master's lifter, um, right now, because we just seem to run into these like very unpredictable periods of training kind of towards the end of a block where there's no clear signs of fatigue, but pain just shows up. Um, and it's kind of just like trying to squeeze something out before the boogeyman comes. Right. And we just like pull back preemptively and, and, you know, restart the progression. So I'll report back to you with how that's going with him. Um, cause we're only on the week two of this and next week we'll, we'll give it a push and see what happens, but that's, uh, that's cool. And, and I'm glad to hear that. Like now you're able to kind of resume more normal training and it's just an interesting, you know, Uh, approach to dealing with injury because a lot of times, you know, people would think, okay, you know, you keep getting beat up. Let's, you know, change the movements that you're doing, right? Let's take time away from the, the competition movement. When in reality, you kind of recognize that it was a pattern of pacing. It was a, a sensitivity to certain intensities or frequency of exposure to them. And, you know, you just adjust accordingly. And you're, I would imagine, undoubtedly in a better spot with his training when going through shorter turnarounds than you would have been to say, let's do SSB instead of low bar. Let's reduce your squat frequency to twice a week instead of three times a week or whatever. So. Yeah. His training has, has gone pretty well. Um, since, uh, you know, um, one just being able to, you know, avoid injury. Um, And I think, you know, he like just by staying in a productive zone rather than having to take like three weeks to, you know, like rehab his injuries again and then, you know, have like three weeks of productive training and having to take like two, three weeks to rehab it again. And then just kind of having it being like an endless cycle. When we started working together, I think his squat max was like 425. And then we um, had like a series of training that was really well and he progressed up to like 500 and then we had that difficulty period where he was just kind of like in this like endless loop and he like stagnated at that like 500 if not like slightly like just ended up progressing um and then as soon as we were able to return back to normal training he like shot to like 560 Jeez. like in a in a in like one meat prep so yeah that's what i mean that's what that's kind of why i describe him as a glass cannon because he's someone that just like blows up when his training is is just consistent and then um and then just can butch can shatter very easily although i would just not even call him a glass cannon anymore because it's been many many blocks of just running five week blocks and no difficulty showing up yeah um and his, his training's pretty normal um he's kind of like a like a taller 
uh, um, core leverage squat. I mean, squat is the, it was, you know, the main source of the, his injuries. And uh, he's a very, very poor leverage for squat, just a very short torso, very long legs. Um, but despite that, so, so we take a lot of like measures to actually like uh, um, do um, load uh, limiting variations, like, like high, like tempo high bar on a secondary day, for example. And then if we even like have low bar on a second day, like his, his one RM just regresses. He's the one RM just goes so it's, he just needs like having a high bar load limiting day. So um, I think that's also something that's kept him healthy. It's just like, you know, doing uh, something that is limiting. So, um, but his, his other squat day is completely comp. So, yeah. And, and it's, it's, I don't have to limit his training really either. I, I do it at a pretty like average normal pace. It's not like I have to keep everything super light. He just trains you know, kind of have how you'd expect someone to. That's really cool. So um that that's a that's a good case right there. Um but uh other other than that, I don't uh I don't I don't have too many crazy outliers or uh you know do three week blocks for anyone else. Mm -hmm. Um most of my guys are are seem to be pretty um you know average five week um block lengthers. The five week so, block enjoyers. Yeah. That's 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 what I've seen typically for for most um sometimes sometimes six for like lighter females although mm -hmm. I only coach like three females <laughs> yeah no I got you yeah All I right. guess the I was say I guess the 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 raid uh group just just biases like teenage boys yeah <laughs> rowdy young men all going to see the Barbie movie. <laughs> yeah just like like the 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 average barbie movie demographic the average ryan gosling is literally me demographic yeah that, that'd, that'd be it <laughs> <laughs> oh man this was fun guys if if you guys have nothing to add i feel like we're in a good spot to uh to wrap things up oh yeah this was fantastic yep i really enjoyed this michael jaren any any closing remarks at all um, I think I think uh, overall, kind of like how you said, Sean, that this was like a very specific topic we got a chance to talk about, and and I think compared to five or ten years ago, it's it's you know we I felt like it still is somewhat polarized in the in the powerlifting community on training strategies, but now it's kind of becoming a little bit more uniform, and I think more coaches and aspiring coaches out there, I think us having talks specific like this or we're kind of opening Pandora's box in a good way to like start having those coaches maybe collaborate more and share their experiences working with their rosters. And uh, rather than kind of a you versus me, my strategy works, yours doesn't. Now yeah. it's kind of a new age where it's more of a, like this work for this particular lifter you work with, I'd like to kind of pull and apply that. And then we're kind of giving and taking and kind of opening the door for this type of talk. So I'm excited to be a part of more and, and to see if other coaches or other people listening have unique outlier experiences to share but yeah looking forward to it yeah absolutely man yeah and i always i always really appreciate the time for us to to bounce ideas back and forth and brainstorm and and learn from each other and like michael said it's like you know when coaches have different approaches i think before they would try to challenge each other and see who's right but i think we're, we're really finding that there's so much to learn from each other and there's so many ways that you can get